Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, too, we pray that your Spirit would be speaking to each one of us. Give us tender hearts, open eyes, open ears to what it is you mean to say to each one of us. No more, Lord, and certainly no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we jump into Ruth, I want to read a passage out of Deuteronomy 25. We've talked about kinsmen and kinsmen redeemers and numbers of things about marriage and remarriage and children and raising up names. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 is kind of the key passage which is behind the events of Ruth chapter 4, the the legal transaction, as it were, that we'll see here in Ruth 4 is predicated on Matthew 25, verses 5 through 10. Let me read that before we get into Ruth 4. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to someone strange, to a strange man, someone distant. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him, And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now this passage is specifically about a redeemer in the sense of having children. There's other passages that actually also provide for redemption of land. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, remember the passage where Jeremiah agrees to buy some land, even though he knows the Babylonians are coming in and are going to take everything captive. He's redeeming a relative's land. He's playing the kinsman redeemer role. And it was also in Jeremiah, it was a sign of hope that God was saying, you all will return. This land will be here to be had, so don't worry about that. This passage specifically, though, we'll see land a little bit later, but the key thought here is that the widow of one brother would marry one of the other brothers, and that other brother would take her as his wife, and the first son of their union would become the heir to the deceased brother. And remember we've talked about this. The thought was if he didn't have an heir, his name died in Israel. His line ended and this was just considered a great tragedy. So here was the provision in the law for the widow to be married again so that her first husband's name would not die out in Israel. How would you like to be known as the one whose sandal was removed? We'll look at that a little bit later too. Now That's the background to Ruth chapter 4. And as you'll see, this is not carried out exactly the same, probably for a couple reasons. You remember this is the days of the judges. These are dark days. And God's will, especially related to the law, while it might have been known in general in some ways, probably was not uh, 
as ubiquitous or as uh, handy as it is to us today. We've got our Bible. Uh, these were dark days, and the knowledge of portions of the law was probably a little obscure. The upside of that in this case is the folks who are involved in the business of Ruth 4 do seek to carry out the spirit of the law if they don't do the letter. They do carry out the spirit of the law, which is all positive. So with that as our background, Ruth 4, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now just a reminder, from chapter 3, this is, a, this is a day change in the setting or the scenery that we saw. Remember chapter 3, everything happens at night. It's dark. And there's secret councils. And Ruth sneaks out in the dark and finds Boaz. And they whisper their secret plans in the darkness of the night. And then... Ruth leaves before the dawn of day can let anyone know who she was or that she was there. Everything was dark and the conversation was whispered and in secret. And here in chapter 4, the curtain is drawn from the night scene. It's the light of day. Day is here and instead of the dark scene there at the threshing floor, we're in the broad open daylight in the public square at the city gate. It's a total change in scenery. It's a total change in what we've been seeing. The plans that have been laid in secret are going to be brought out into the open. And if you forget, this, uh, for really for generations or for thousands of years, there was no such thing as municipal courts. There was no judicial system in the sense that we think of it today. So if you carried out business, the city gate is where it was taken care of. The city gate was their version of municipal court. So if you were going to do a transaction, if you were going to do anything that was considered legal, or binding, you'd go to the city gate, you'd gather witnesses, and you'd carry out your transaction. That's the way it was dealt with. And so Boaz has gone up to the city gate, to the place of transaction in the light of day, to get the ball rolling on this redemption thing with Ruth and with some land, as we'll see here in just a minute. He called the elders because these ten elders would serve as the official witnesses. Now those are the only group that he says, please sit down, but you'll notice plural later uses that there are more than just the elders. You know, you can imagine if you see Boaz doing business and he's called the elders and you're walking by, you think, it's just like seeing, you know, uh, red lights at a street. What's going on? So then the other people come over to listen to Boaz's business and see what official transaction is taking place. So he's called the near kinsmen and he's called the witnesses, the elders. Now, it's interesting, uh, you guys probably have various versions, but New American Standard is quite kind in its translation here when it says, he said, friend, come over here. Uh, the Hebrew is really, I can't forget the English term you'd use this for, you know, helter-skelter. Well, the Hebrew here is pelonai almonai, and it doesn't mean friend. It, that's not actually a translation for it. It means so-and-so. This near redeemer is never named in the story. He's just called Mr. So-and-so. Now, it's not because Boaz doesn't know his name. You know, there's a little bit of conjecture here. Why isn't he named? One thought is that his family or he personally is being spared embarrassment, as we'll see later here in the story. You know, Mr. No Sandal Guy. 
being spared some embarrassment, some public humiliation. I, I kind of doubt if that's the case because the scripture and the Lord are quite willing to assign honor or blame where necessary. I suspect, though, that in this story, here's a person that, as we'll see, is called upon to raise up the name of a dead relative. And he will refuse, which we'll look at in a little bit, so that the one who refused to raise someone else's name up will himself remain nameless. He has no name in the book of Ruth or in the scriptures as far as we know. Well, verse 3, he said, Boaz gets right to the heart of the matter. Kristen, he's not wasting any time. He's going right in for this. Okay. He said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before these who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. So I thought to inform you, I'm sorry, let's see, I lost my place. Buy it before and before the... If you will redeem it, redeem. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now it's interesting, chapter 3 was all about Ruth. And Boaz comes and he's ready to conduct business and he's talking about a piece of land all of a sudden. Where did that come from? What's this about? No land has been mentioned. It's possible, it's likely, that when Elimelech and his family left to Moab, that a neighbor, somebody just took over the use of their land. This was fairly uh, normal. This wouldn't have been unheard of. This would be a standard practice. Whether Naomi forgot it, we don't know. Or why didn't Ruth, if they knew they had the land, why didn't Ruth go glean on the land that belonged to their own family? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Even if Naomi was aware of it, we're not sure. Maybe Boaz knew the land was there. It was, should have been Naomi's, etc. We don't know. But this is the very first mention of it. There's this land. So instead of st- uh, starting out talking about Ruth, we're talking about this chunk of land to the kinsman, Redeemer. So... Boaz says, there's the land, do you want to redeem it? And the guy says, sure, no problem, I'll do it. Now at this point, probably the kinsman and redeemer is thinking, okay, here's a piece of land, the price will be right, I'll add it to my holdings, it's a good business deal. This is a no-brainer. And besides that, Naomi and her daughter-in-law have no heirs, and so there will be no one from that family to claim this land later, You remember every 49th year, land that was sold was supposed to go back to the original family, back to their holdings. So there'd be no claiming this later. So, gosh, this is a no-brainer. Sure, I'll be the kinsman. Sure, I'll buy the land. No problem. Good business sense. Good deal. Well, Boaz continues, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. He probably hadn't read Deuteronomy 25 the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. You redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. 
This is certainly better than the spit in the face, isn't it? He gets to take off his own sandal with no spit in the face. This will work. Okay, well, he's changed his mind, hasn't he? All of a sudden, we went from redeeming the land, no problem, I'll do it, to, by the way, you get Ruth along with the deal and you must raise up the name of Elimelech and Malon. Now he says, hold on, I cannot redeem it. He doesn't even say here, I will not, I choose not. He says, I cannot. It's a little unclear here what this means, that he cannot redeem it. We might assume, if you think, okay, what are the options? One could be, maybe he's unmarried. Maybe he fears, if I marry Ruth, the first child, maybe my only child isn't mine, it's Malon's. So then Malon's name continues in Israel, but not mine. And if I didn't have further children, all my inheritance goes to someone who doesn't even bear my name, even though he would be genetically his child. Or he could be married with children and somehow throwing another heir in the pot. You know, if you read British history or French history or German history, you know, this right of succession becomes a big deal. Who gets what? And somehow in this mix, he may have understood that I have heirs and now if I take on this family and this heir, this is going to complicate everything. So he doesn't say I won't, but he says I can't do it. I can't play the role of redeemer. I could have bought the land, but I can't take the wife. No thanks. You can have it. You can have her. Uh, this is, of course, what Boaz wanted uh, all along. And uh, let's look just a little more closely at what he did here. I think that Boaz, you remember in chapter 2, we said this is a portrait of a godly man. Well, his godliness continues here, but added to, to simple godliness and kindness in chapter 4 is also wisdom or shrewdness. Look at what he did, just related to godliness to begin with. The secret plans in the dark in chapter 3, he doesn't keep in the dark. He brings them right out into the light of day, into the public square. Everything he's doing is above board. When this business is settled, whether he's the redeemer or the other one, the other relative, everything's out in the light, nothing's hidden. Nothing's illicit or dark. There's no shade of gray in this. Everything's out in the open. Everything's out in the open. He's not hiding anything. He's also willing to take what we understand is a great desire to marry Ruth, this person that he finds uh, great esteem. He esteems her greatly. He loves her for a number of reasons. And no doubt, we know Boaz wants to take Ruth as his own wife. But when he comes to the public square, he lays his right behind the right of the nearer kinsman, as he had to, legitimately, he had to. And in doing so, he basically put this thing in God's hands, and I'm sure is praying up to the city gate saying, Yahweh, I really want this woman. You know, here's this bright ray of sunshine in my later days, and I really want to marry Ruth, but I'm laying this at your feet. And I recognize that I don't have first claim here. Someone else does. And Lord, this is what I want, but I lay this at your feet. I'm not going to... cut corners, I'm going to do everything appropriately and above board, and Lord, if you want me to have Ruth, you please bring that to pass. So he is laying his hopes. Remember this sudden, remember he woke up in chapter 3, probably wanted a wife all his life, and there in the middle of the night while he's sleeping, God lays this lovely young woman at his feet, and Boaz hears life from the dead, and, but now he's got to take that newfound hope and that new dream, and he's got to lay it out basically 
in the dust of the dirt, just like the threshing floor, and say, Lord, if you want this for me, you're going to have to bring it to pass. And this is just a great reminder. You know, we are often tempted to take things into our own hands, to cut corners or to cast things in shades of gray so that we can get what we want. You know, there's a great verse in Romans 12 where we are supposed to see ourselves as an offering that we lay ourselves on the altar and that means that when there's desires in our life or issues that we want to come out a certain way and we're not sure what God's going to do, that with Boaz, we're supposed to take these things, be out in the open, do things legitimately, don't cut corners, and submit our desire to God. That's exactly what Boaz did. Very godly. Everything out in the open, no hiding, nothing illegitimate, and submitted his desire to God. And God's going to honor that, as we know. So very godly. His godliness continues here in chapter 4. But the other thing I want you to notice is, this guy was shrewd and he was wise. And sometimes we don't always put those two things together, godliness with wisdom or shrewdness. Look at what Boaz did, though. He really was godly. He really did right. In it's the light of day. It's before God and everyone else. Nothing illegitimate. Submitted it to God, absolutely. But look at the other thing he did. Like Naomi in chapter 3, he's got a plan. When he comes to the city gate, he knows that he's the better man for Ruth. But he wants the near relative to be able to recognize that too. So he is laying his desires at God's feet and subject to this near kinsman's right to redeem Ruth. But look at what he does. The way that he frames this process of redemption, mentioning the land first and then Ruth, was probably meant to get the other relative to give up quickly and absolutely any claim he might have on Ruth. Now this is a little obscure, but the mention of the land first appears to be meant to get the relative to say yes to the redemption this is like a worm on a hook. Boaz wants him to say yes initially. Well, sure, I'll do that. And then bringing up redeeming Ruth and raising up an heir second is probably also meant to set the hook so that he has to acknowledge right up front, right now, before God and everyone else that while I wanted the land, I can't take the woman. And so I give up unequivocally right now, all right, all my rights as a potential redeemer in this situation. So he's very godly on one hand, and I think he's very shrewd and very wise on the other. He's both. And on one hand, I think sometimes we see these uh, as contradictions, that somehow if we're shrewd or wise, it's, somehow it's less than honest. There's no shade of gray with this. Everything Boaz does is honest and open. He knows the other kinsman, probably, when he comes up to the gate. He probably knows that this guy cannot or will not redeem Ruth. But he honestly and openly gives him the opportunity to do so. But he does it in such a way that that nearer relative will see clearly the... Uh, See it in such a light that he will say unequivocally right now, black and white, she's yours, I can't have her. You can have her, she's not for me. So godliness on one hand, shrewdness and wisdom on the other. 
And you know, when you look through a book of the Bible like Proverbs, Toby's favorite book, you're encouraged and exhorted again and again and again throughout that book to be wise and prudent. And in fact, you get to passages in the New Testament Colossians that Christ in himself, the person of Jesus, is wisdom. He is wisdom. We don't have true wisdom apart from God. So there's no wisdom or shrewdness that we can use or possess that's not from God himself. Wisdom, prudence. And if you think Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, he told his followers to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And that's exactly what Boaz is doing here. Everything he does is honest and godly, but it's also wise and shrewd. He is innocent and he's shrewd at the same time in his dealings related to this. If you're in a situation like Boaz was where you want something, you're not sure how it's going to come out, you're not even sure what your motives are sometimes. If your motives are deficient when you start in, if you're ready to cut those corners or hide in the darkness to get what you want, confess your sin to God. Start right at the front. Clean it up before you start. Lord, my motives are wrong. I realize I'm being tempted to cut corners I want this thing so bad, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I'm not going to jump through the hoops publicly in the light of day before you and before others. Confess it to God. Lord, I'm tempted here. If you're not sure what your motives are, and sometimes we aren't. You know, the scripture says our own hearts are deceitful, so much so sometimes that we don't even know why we're doing what we do. You know, you can do what David did in Psalm 139. Lord, search my heart. Try me. You detect any hurtful way in in me. Anything, Lord, that I would do that would not be appropriate in this situation, you please give me revelation of that so I can cut that thing off early. And then if you lack wisdom, Boaz was innocent in this, and his motives were pure. And I don't know if he asked God for wisdom on the front end, but if we're in this situation, Lord, how is this thing going to turn out? How do I wisely negotiate the things that need to be done here? James 1 says, if we lack wisdom, ask God for it. He gives to all men generously. This is a a promise I think we are far too slow to take God up on. This is an absolute promise that if you face a situation in which you lack wisdom, Lord, what do I do? What's the wise, prudent, shrewd thing to do here? James 1 says, you ask God. God is a generous giver. And if you come to him in your need and you say, Lord, I need your wisdom, it says he will give it. And he won't reprove you. He won't tell you, go away. He appreciates your honoring him when you come to him and ask for wisdom. And he'll give it. And he gave wisdom to Boaz. You know, this whole thing with the sandal, too. Here at the end, the guy takes a sandal off. Uh, Perhaps a little obscure, but I think... You remember when God called Abraham to come down into the land of promise? He told him, every place that the sole of your foot walks on will be yours. And somehow out of that thought, it appears that the sandal represented authority or the right to own a place or a thing. That just as God said to Abraham, what your sandal walks on is yours, I give it to you. It's yours. You have the right to it. It's your possession. That the sandal became symbolic 
It's like a contract. You know, we would sign a contract. The sandal was that visual contract. When the guy took his sandal off, he was saying, I give up all claim, I give up all right to that piece of land and to this woman. It was as if he signed a disclaimer or a release form, and everyone understood that, that it symbolized. It was a symbol of right or authority to possess a certain thing. And he passes that right of redemption to Boaz. Cool. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, we didn't start with all the people. We started with ten elders. Now everybody else is huddled around hearing the business. You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, his sons. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Can you imagine if you're a young little Jewish boy or girl hearing this story for the first time? This is where you stand up and say, Hurrah! The good guy won. Boaz, our hero, gets Ruth the heroine. The story has turned out okay. I'm relieved. I wasn't sure how the story was going to end up, but he gets her. The other kinsman says, no, I can't. You take her. And Boaz says, before God and the people, I'm taking her. And so those plans in the dark, they're in the light of day. And Boaz, our hero, gets Ruth, our heroine. Now, just like a stage play, or just like the refrain in a song, this harkens back, these next verses, just like something out of the Song of Solomon. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth or power or prestige, or we could say, may you achieve a name in Ephrathah and, became, and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which Yahweh shall give you by this young woman. See, this was the climax, wasn't it? And so now the chorus comes in, and it's praise and it's blessing. May Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. Why Rachel and Leah? You remember? They're the moms of the patriarchs, along with their handmaids, Zilpah and Bilhah. They're the mothers of all the patriarchs. May Ruth be just like them. May God build the nation of Israel on Ruth. May you achieve wealth or a name, Boaz, in Bethlehem. Well, he already had a name, chapter 2 told us, and a reputation. And yet, their prayer is that God would add to that, to Boaz. And may your house be like that of Perez. You know, Perez is not the most well-known name uh, in the Old Testament. But Perez, who was the son of Judah, who was the patriarchal head of everyone who's standing at that gate. You remember if they all trace their family tree back, they live in Judah, in Bethlehem, which was the tribal area that all of Judah's descendants lived in. So there might be a few from a different tribe, but primarily all the folks here are blessing Ruth and Boaz in the name of the head of the tribe. And when they mention Perez, the son of Tamar by Judah, remember that 
Tamar, like Ruth, was both a foreigner and a widow. So that like Tamar, may Ruth, this person who was a foreigner to Israel and who was herself widowed, no children, just like Tamar, when she's widowed, no children, may she, like Tamar, have children, like Perez. And remember, Perez was actually one of twins. And when the twins were being born, they tied a little red string around the other guy whose name we don't even remember. And guess what? Perez, whose name means breach, he made a breach. And somehow in the tight confines of the womb, he got out first. May your descendant be like that breach bearer, Perez, who got out, who became this forceful, powerful person. So here at the end, you've got this great chorus, this praise and this blessing in which Ruth is brought into the family circle and named with the family greats like Rachel and Leah and Tamar and right up there with Judah himself. This is the climax of the story. And all we have to go over next week is the epilogue. Gosh, it seems kind of boring at this point, doesn't it? We've taken this roller coaster ride and we got to the top here in chapter 4 and it's all downhill, downhill from here. Uh, let's, uh, at the end of the roller coaster ride here, let's just re- review some, just the high points of this ride. You remember our story started back when Elimelech, in days of famine, made a choice, seemed good at the time, to leave Israel to go to Moab and find bread. But things didn't turn out well, and he died, and his sons died, and Here you've got poor Ruth, this foreign widow, with Naomi, this penniless older widow, coming back to Israel without any means of provision. And Ruth, this kind woman, who showed her kindness to Naomi by coming back with her at all, chapter 2 told us she just happened, she just chanced upon the field of Boaz, who happened to be a relative. And Boaz shows her great kindness, and a light dawns for Naomi. Here's this relative, and boy, he's kind, and, you know, I wonder if he would play the role of redeemer. And then we saw the plans laid in darkness in chapter 3, and then they're brought out into the light of chapter 4, and and everything's going to turn out just fine. But we weren't sure along the way, were we? We... We wondered, gosh, what are these penniless widows going to do? How are they going to get on? This story that started so well, it it seemed to end so quickly and bitterly. And Naomi, remember, said, don't call me Naomi, meaning pleasant, but call me Mara, call me bitter. The epilogue, of course, talks about Naomi's happy ending, but we weren't sure. And you know, isn't it fun? Ruth is a story par excellence, even in biblical terms. Here's his four chapter story short which is just a perfect story just a perfect story and we read it and it's fun to sit down you know you can read this thing in 10 minutes and you read about the loss and the hopelessness and then the chance meeting and one thing leads to another and we ended up with this happy ending to this happy short story But you know, the truth of it is, all of us, you and I, we're all at some stage in a story just like this, only it's being written right now. And then, like Boaz, or like Ruth and Naomi, we face these crises in our lives and we're just not sure what to do with them. 
We're not sure how the story is going to end. We're not sure what to do. When we hit these periods of poverty or loss or despair, or we thought we got one thing and now we get another, or we're in a situation and it seems hopeless and there's no way out. And it seems a little less exciting then, doesn't it, than reading someone else's story. But it's our story and it's being written right now. And you know, a story like Ruth should remind us. We've had great reminders here all along. Remember, we said that there's no chances with God. It wasn't by chance that Ruth ended up in that field. That was God at work behind the scenes. And you remember, this whole story takes place during dark days. The period of the judges, terrible days to live in. You know, sometimes we here in our times feel like the days are morally dark. They're no darker than they were then. But God was still at work. He's at work in our life no matter how dark it seems. And you know, when you and I run out of resources, or when we thought we were going to get one thing and we get another, and we're tempted to hopelessness or despair, we should be thinking about stories like Ruth. We should be thinking about examples like Ruth, especially for women, this kind woman, excelling in kindness, helping someone else even at her own expense and seeing God bless her abundantly beyond anything she could have imagined because of it. Or like Boaz, this older guy, probably thought life had passed him by, no wife, no family. And God lays a bride at his feet in the middle of the night while he's sleeping. And he was a kind man, and he was a godly man. But he didn't know what was coming. We need to be thinking about Ruth and Boaz. We need to be taking encouragement or taking our cues from these heroes and heroines of the faith. You know, they were living their life. They were living this story we read. They didn't have the pleasure we have of reading it in someone else's work. But they exemplify kindness and honesty and godliness and faithfulness. So that no matter where we're at today, you know, you're someplace where you're trying to make decisions. Ask God for wisdom if you don't know. You know you're being tempted to cut corners. Confess it to God and say, Lord, I want to do right by you. I want to be open in the light of day before you and before men. If you need to make counsel with others, do it in private as you need to do that. Get wise counsel. Make plans. Scripture talks about that a lot. And when it's time to bring them to pass, bring them out in the open. Don't hide in the dark. Make it legitimate. Conduct your business in the light of day. I mean... All of us are going to face times in our life in which we're in these circumstances. They appear hopeless. We're tempted to despair. We're tempted to cut corners or whatever. Ruth and Boaz are both these great examples of how to follow God's will even in the dark days, even in the tough times, even when it appears there's no hope and no way out. Their story can be your story and my story. You know, ours is being written. And one day... We're going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to open his book, isn't he? And he's going to read our story. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians talk about our life being reviewed by God. He's going to read our story. Will your story and mine read like Ruth's, dear gal? Will it read like Boaz, 
Will the people in heaven stand up like these folks and cheer because the hero came through in the end? Because the heroine remained faithful till the end? Our story's being written, and it will be read, and everyone will be there. At this moment, did we hold fast? Did we finish the race? Did we honor God? Did we do right before others? Were we godly? Did we exercise his wisdom? It's being written. And guys, you know, when you're in it, it doesn't seem easy. And the temptations are there to hide in the dark, to cut the corners, to hold what you want to yourself instead of laying it down before God. But there's hope in this. You know, the God who says he's generous so that if you need wisdom, come, because he's generous. That's the God you're serving. When you lay your life down to the God of all life, you get life back. You don't lose. You win. Boaz doesn't lose here. He wins. Ruth doesn't lose. She wins. These stories that start with death, they end with life when these folks commit their ways and their hopes and their dreams to God. He's the God of all life. And when you stick with him, that's what you get. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck again and again how many stories there are in Scripture which seem to be dead ends in which the wall magically moves, in which a dead end becomes a gate to a new place. Lord, I'm struck by how many births in the Bible came to women who could not bear, came to husbands and wives, couples who could not have children. And Lord, it was because you had something bigger and better. Lord, you're always at work, even and maybe especially in the darkest days. Lord, help us to remember the godliness, the kindness, the wisdom of both Ruth and Boaz. The humility, Lord, to lay their hopes at your feet to receive back from you the life that you'd already ordained. Lord, help us to remember that to give you our life is not to lose. To honor you is to only gain. And that, Lord, just like Jesus, he appeared to lose all when he died on the cross. Lord, it was the beginning of resurrection and glory and life to come. Lord, help us not shrink from laying our life down at your feet, knowing that you're the resurrection God. You're the God who brings life out of death. Help us to entrust ourselves in every day, in every way, and in every situation, Lord, into your keeping as Ruth and as Boaz did. In Jesus' name, amen.